<laughs> well, we're at our third question in our series, Life's Big Questions. Today we look at what about everybody else? And we look at some parables in Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 44. Would you stand with me as we hear these words together? <clears throat> the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of, God, a kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good in the baskets and threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. He had been in the church for a long, long time since he was a little boy. And everyone knew him because his parents were involved in everything at the church, which meant he was at the church whether he wanted to be or not. As he got a little bit older, he became a little bit more difficult and a little more sullen, as adolescents can often do. As the next years went by, his appearance began to change a little bit. Uh, I never thought I could pull one off, but he had the best mohawk I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it was a foot high, and it was a different color from time to time. It was fantastic. And he had some really great uh, piercing, body piercings that he sported very well. But the crowning touch came when he added the necklace with the big skull that hang ar hung around his neck. It was kind of the cherry on top of the ice cream sundae of his style, you know. And I loved that kid, and I watched him with concern as he became more and more withdrawn. And one day I had an idea that I thought was inspired. And so I asked him, next time we have communion, would you serve communion with me? And I was taken aback at how quickly he responded. Yes, I would really like that. So when communion Sunday rolled around and I stood at the front of the chancel and I asked the servers to come forward, the first one out, was my mohawk skull-wearing friend. And he comes down the aisle and he stands by me. And we serve communion together. I had the best seat in the house to watch the facial expressions of the congregation. They were varied and wonderful. Some had that Barry's finally totally lost it look that I was very used to. 
Some looked a little confused. Some looked a little angry. Some were trying to make furtive glances around the sanctuary to see how awkward it would be to go to the other side so they could get in another line. But because they're the church, they all came to communion. The next day, my phone rings, and it's a parishioner, and the conversation began with these words, I want to talk to you about communion. And so in my head, I was saying, okay, here we go. And this person shared with me, when I saw that boy come down the aisle, I couldn't think of one good reason why you would ask him to serve communion. And I was a little angry and I was a little distracted, a little confused, but I came. And by the time I got back to my seat, something had happened me, I realized I was overwhelmed with the fact that God's love was wider and broader than my comfort zone, and that the kingdom of God was beyond my imagination. It was like I was taking communion for the first time. Please tell me you're going to have that kid back next time. I've shared with you a little uh, about when we were starting a new United Methodist Church down in South Louisiana. We met a lot of Jewish neighbors and we ended up kind of helping them start a new reform synagogue. And one of the benefits of that relationship was that during disciple Bible study, if you've ever taken disciple Bible study, you know the first half is the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament, and the second half is the Christian writings or the New Testament. And at that break, we would have a, an evening where our Jewish friends would come and we could ask questions that had come up during our study. How do Jewish people think about this now? Do they still do this? Do they still practice that? It was wonderful and rich to be able to have those conversations with our Jewish neighbors. Well, one year as we met, the elder of their congregation came. He was the oldest member of their group. And he asked if he could speak, and these are the words he said. I've spent my entire life disliking Christians and not trusting Christians because of the way I've been treated and my family's been treated all my life. We've been hated and discriminated against and excluded and ignored. And now, at this point in my life, I meet some Christians who actually treat me the way Christians say they act. And it's changed me. In the days following 9-11, our church did a, an interreligious dialogue with some of our Muslim neighbors. And at the end of that experience that we shared together, one of the Muslim men asked a couple of men from my church about an event that was happening on a Sunday night and asked if they could come. And they said, sure, if you eat fried chicken, you can come. And they said, well, we can do that. So this man came. And he brought his camera 
and he had his picture made with every member of the church that was in that group. He said he wanted to remember these people who didn't hate him and didn't judge him and didn't respect him. He wanted to remember these Christians who had treated him like a neighbor. Our text from Matthew is also three little stories about the kingdom of God. They're odd little stories, and I've always loved them. The first one, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a man who finds a treasure in a field and hides it and goes and sells all that he has and buys it. We don't know if the man's plowing and unearths a treasure chest or if he's just walking along and trips over something and goes back to see what it was and it's a, a treasure chest sticking out of the ground. We just know he stumbles upon it. And then he hides it and raises the money so he can come back and buy it from the poor sucker who owns it and doesn't know there's a treasure on it. <laughs> Sometimes in our life, we kind of stumble into the kingdom. We're not looking for God. We might even actively be avoiding God. We might not even know we need to be looking for God, but something or someone comes into our life and we find ourselves in the midst of the kingdom. And it's a treasure that's worth more than all we have. The second story. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a pearl merchant, a man whose job is to buy pearls, the finest pearls. He's been on a quest, perhaps his whole career as a pearl merchant, looking for that perfect pearl. And one day he finds it. And he goes and sells all that he has and raises all the money he can so he can come and buy that perfect pearl. Sometimes we find our way into the kingdom of God because we've sought after it and knocked and asked. And when we do find ourselves in the kingdom, we realize it's a treasure worth more than all we have. And then that third story. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a net that's cast into the sea and catches all kinds of fish. The people of Jesus' day would have known well what kind of net he was referring to. These nets were huge. They were four to six feet tall and up to two or three hundred feet wide. It took several men and a couple of boats to navigate around and fish with these huge nets and they would drag these nets through the waters and Jesus makes it clear that the net is not very discriminating or very selective it just catches all kinds of things whatever's in front of it it brings it in and at the end of the day the fishermen would bring that net ashore and they would sort out the fish but unlike those first two little parables Jesus explains the third one. 
Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of God is like. The net catches everything. And at the end of the age, the angels come and sort out the fish. Sort out the people. It is not primarily an image of evangelism. It's an image of judgment. It's an image of that day out there when all things are reconciled together in God, when all things come together in God. And to believe in the God of Jesus is to believe that there is such a day. Despite all appearances to the contrary, we believe that God is at work in the world, that God's love is at work in the world bringing everything to a day when all things are brought together in God. Throughout the scriptures, the grand narrative of scripture, there are glimpses given to us of how God's work in the world is beyond our imagination and bigger and broader and deeper than we could ever dream. In the very first book, of the scripture, the book of Genesis, at the beginning of this story, old Abraham and Sarah are chosen and called by God. They're too old to have any kids, but God says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Why? So that all people will be blessed. I'm going to make a nation out of you so that all the nations of the earth will know me. Then in the Gospel of John, I think it's the 10th chapter when Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd, Jesus looks at those disciples that have gathered around him and said, I have sheep that are not of this fold, but I'm going to bring them in as well because I'm the good shepherd and I've come that they may have life and have life abundantly. And then in the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation, John looks across a multitude he describes as beyond counting. Every size and shape of person, every nation, language, tribe, and culture represented, all standing before the throne and praising God because God is the one who holds salvation. God is the one who brought them. Together. No one who wrote those stories could have ever imagined how God is going to pull that off. It's beyond any way of thinking they had. And as much as our sinful natures try to tell us otherwise these days, it's beyond our imagination too. It's beyond our understanding. It's beyond our opinions. It's beyond because it's God. And God will do what God says God will do. So what about everybody else? Jesus seems to think that's God's job, answering that question everybody 
else? What about everybody else? I don't know about you, but whatever God is doing, and however God chooses to do it, I want to be in on it. I want to be a part of it. I want to be that Christian whose Jesus shines through so clear that anybody who crosses my path has had at least one glimpse of God's love in Jesus Christ. What about everybody else? I want to be that person that shows people another way, a way that leads to the kingdom of God. I don't ever want to be the person that's their excuse for not looking for it. What about everybody else? Every day, I just want to be hauling that net in. I want to be a part of what God is doing in the world. You see, over the years of my ministry, I've come to believe this. That when we're really serious, we're really concerned about the everybody else. And trust me, I don't care what perspective we come from. We all have an everybody else. Amen? Amen. We all have an everybody else. When we're really concerned for them, for their lives, for their souls, the question gets translated by the Spirit, and this question that started out being about them becomes questions about us. How do I live and speak and act in such a way that I reflect the love of God into every person I meet? How do I bear witness to this God who is casting this net and drawing in all who are caught in the net of the kingdom? What about everybody else? I trust God with that and commit myself anew to never being a stumbling block to someone knowing the kingdom of God in their own life. Here's what I know about everybody else. They're just like me. They need forgiveness for their sins. They need love and grace in their life. They need God to do for them what they can never do for themselves the same way I do. Here's what I know about everybody else. They're just like me in that they need the hope and the meaning and the purpose that can only be found in following Jesus to God. Here's what I know about everybody else. God loves them just as much as I trust God loves me. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit,